Yes, we are going to turn to John chapter 7. make sure that wasn't a prayer request coming in. Now, last week, we began to look at the great principle of how uh, the Word of God will divide us. And in chapter 7, you find that it will be one of the chapters where we see that, you know, Christ's own family rejected him. Everybody except James. James becomes a key apostle in, uh, with Jerusalem, and uh, he's, a, he's a real leader down there uh, when you get farther on in the book of Acts. And you want to keep in mind that all of this will be part, as I said, and I want to keep this you know, always before you, of the great mystery of iniquity in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Simply the devil trying to stop Christ and take his place as God. Now, we have talked a lot about patterns, and I want you to see how that patterns are always key to seeing how things work, because history never changes. The, the times change, the people change, but the patterns always stay the same. So, you know, this is, this is the pattern that you have here, and maybe you just haven't quite put the pattern together. First of all, uh, we saw in chapter 6 that the devil infiltrates the 12 that are doing the ministry with Judas. We now know that he's of that wicked one, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Then he divides the people, and he uses the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees to do that. And all this is to stop what Christ is doing. And then, you know, the nation is divided. I mean, they're in great turmoil. And then finally, watch the pattern, Finally, he attacks Christ's own family, and he divides them, and all to get truth out of the way and to stop Christ from doing what he was wanting to do. And you want to see that Christ, as the truth, he divided all these things, and then the devil subtracted truth, and you saw the problem that you have. Now, make the parallels to our own time, then and now. We see a division of our nation. We see a division of our people, Christianity. We see a division of churches. And now we see a great division of families. And uh, it's quite incredible when you see it. And the key that you want to remember, the reason why patterns will never fail you is because patterns are built on history. And you can argue a lot of things about everything you want, but you can't dispute the facts of history. And in the Bible, history or patterns are based on the history of things, and so uh, they, they just never fail. And, you know, the success or destruction of God's plan uh, will, like John chapter 1, verse 7, depend on what man does with that truth. And, you know, the history of America, and most of you are well familiar with it now. We've covered it many, many times. But it was built by our founding fathers on the principles of the Word of God. And we know that down through history, uh, God moves to do what He wants to do, and the devil moves what He wants to do. And so we find in the history of America where once God's plan got going, 
the devil began to divide by bringing in the seven counterfeit religion and that uh, began to try to undo what God had planned for America. So what God did, and this is a fact of history, God then injected himself into American history. In history, it's called the Seven Great Awakenings. I, I was watching this week with the medical stuff with all the virus and the vaccine, and now, you know, you got to have to get a booster shot because what they told you before now isn't probably going to work, and so now you got to get a booster shot, and then you get a booster shot, get the booster shot, to get a booster booster for the booster shot, and it's going to be, if somebody's going to be giving you a boost for the rest of your life. And I thought of that, and I thought to myself, you know what? You know what the real booster shot is in history? It's God through these seven awakings injecting himself into American history. He gave America seven booster shots. And those booster shots are the real booster shots. They're the ones that kept America on track that we are here today and have what we have. But you'd be off the property by 930. In a couple of weeks, I've got a story to tell you that you are not going to believe. But And John Hill, wherever you're at, if I catch you sleeping in a chair again, you're out of here, pal. Our founding fathers... Oh, have I got a story to tell you? I, I want to tell it now, but I can't. You know, I'm like those four preachers that was in the boat fishing. And the one said, uh, why don't we just, you know, the Bible says confess our faults. Why don't we all just go around the boat and say what our problem is? You know, and we can pray for each other. Well, the first guy said, that's pretty good. He says, I don't want anybody to know this, but I have a drinking problem. They said, well, well, and then the second guy said, well, I appreciate your honesty. I have a smoking problem. And the third guy said, well, well, if we're all into this, I have a gambling problem. And the fourth guy said, well, I appreciate that, guys. My problem is I can't keep my mouth shut and I'm a gossiper. Could you get me to shore right away? <laughs> when our country was founded, the pilgrims came over in a Plymouth in 1620. <laughs> and they founded America. When America got founded then in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we saw, uh, and you know this, and so I'm not going to believe the point, we saw God moving uh, from east to west, which is the movement of the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible. And we saw that right behind those movements, the, the devil brought in his deal. So we see in 1740, only, only, you know, just a short time, we see God giving us the first great awakening. And that was with Jonathan Edwards and, and uh, George Whitfield. And that was to go against the Unitarianism which was coming over from Europe, not the unity that you know today. In 1880, we saw another injection in New York and Pennsylvania. In 1820, we saw one in what was commonly called the Cumberland Gap, Revival down in Cumberland Gap Valley. 
1816, one broke, or 18, uh, excuse me, in 1861, one broke out during the Civil War down in the South. In 1880 or thereabouts, these are all approximate dates, we saw it move into Illinois and Ohio under the teaching of D.L. Moody. And God injected himself again. You know, Moody had Moody Church in Chicago. And do you know that, now this is in the 18, uh, 1880s. You know that he was such a powerful impact that every major newspaper on Monday morning across this country, every one of them, printed his sermons word for word in their newspapers on Monday. That's the impact that he had, and he was one of those injections. He, he was an incredible guy that God used. In the 1920s, we saw it move into the Midwest under the preaching of Billy Sunday. What an impact he was. And then the last injection was around 49 or 50, and that was with Billy Graham. Uh, and I'll tell you, Billy Graham is a perfect example of how he started and how he ended. You ought to go back and find some of his early messages that he's preaching in the 50s, boy. I mean to tell you, he is taking the paint off the wall. I heard a message he preached at one time about America, and this is back in the 50s, about the handwriting on the wall out of Daniel. He was predicting exactly where we're at today. Now, I know he ended wrong and got all caught up with the new evangelical crowd and got destroyed in his doctrine and all that stuff, but I'm saying, and that was the last injection, and uh, there'll be no more. Because as this country moved away from God's truth through the 20th century and rejected his word, and this all starts around 1900, this, what I would call this transition, God now, as, as a country anyhow, has left us to our own destiny, our own destruction. And when the church did likewise, uh, then they're on their own. And actually the church started first and then the country, because when the church goes, the country goes. So you can reverse that. And when the church goes, the, the nation goes, the family goes. And when the family goes, everything now is going to be a disaster. And add to that the end times, Israel in 1948 becoming a nation out of Matthew chapter 24 and all the prophecies there being fulfilled. And now today, right now at this moment, with everything that's going on around us, we are seeing the end of days. Now, the number one issue today, and you know, what's going on around us is not really complicated. The news media, whom you can't trust in anything, I don't care who they are, their job is to make money off of news. So they will keep it as complicated as possible, misdirection, misinformation to keep you on the hook. The best news source you have will be the King James 1611 authorized version by filtering everything you hear through the patterns in the Bible. But that's just me. But the number one issue today in Christianity and America is a complete breakdown, and this is it. This is the bottom line right here. If we fix this, we would fix every problem. Now, they don't want to hear that. I flew to Washington last week. I tried to get an appointment with Obama, not Obama, <laughs> with, with Biden, and the, uh, you know, and nasty Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, and I couldn't get in. I tried to meet congressmen. They wouldn't hear me. 
Because I tried to, maybe I did wrong. I emailed them and told them that I had the answer to America's problem. Maybe that was the first mistake I made. Maybe I should have taken some Gates barbecue, worked my way in, and then went from there. I'm just kidding you. I didn't go to Washington. But if I did, I could solve America's problems in 10 seconds. Or at least get on the road to solving them. But you know what? And I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. Who am I? I mean, you got all these guys, that have, and they, they don't get a clue. And, and you guys, I mean, I could trade places with any one of you, and you could tell them what the problem is. It isn't just me. You know why? Because you're a Bible believer, and you know what the problem is. And the issue today in America is we don't have any authority. There's no final authority. Now, what I'm about to say, if you're listening to this, don't take this wrong. I don't, I'm not into politics one way or the other. I just know what the fundamental problem is. But I want to tell you something. So I'm going to use this as an example. First of all, let me say this. There's nobody that has more of my respect than the police officers of this country. Wherever I go and I see a police officer, I make it a point to walk up to him and thank him. And I make it a point to tell him that I know he's under a lot of fire and I, I support him. Now, most of them, they don't, they're not looking for praise. I don't even think they know how to handle something like that. So they handcuff me and throw me in the back of the car. Okay. <laughs> but that's my feeling on it. You know why? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 13, they're the authority. By God. Not by the government, by God. We saw on Thursday night that in Romans chapter 13 that the governments are ordained of God. Good or bad, because God's going to hold them accountable. And so I, I look at this and I think to myself, you look at all the shootings that police have been involved in. And they're attacked for. And everybody in this country, not everybody, but the majority of them are cries for defunding the police. There have been some places that say, get rid of the police and we'll, we'll hire private security. Just get rid of the police and you know what? Everything will be okay. And they actually try to do that to some degree and look what happens. Now let me just say this to you. And you're not going to like this, probably, some of you. Now I realize that in any organization you have bad and you have good. I think that the 99.0% of the police guys are absolutely good. They're brave heroes. They put their life on the line. They protect it. I mean... Uh, I mean, I had a problem with the one Raytown cop because there was, years ago, because there was a cat stuck in the tree down here for weeks, and I was worried, and I called the police to get somebody to get the cat down. He walked out, and he said, well, he said, I, we're not really supposed to mess with cats. And I said, look, this cat's going to starve to death. You've got to get him down. He said, okay, and down it came. Amen. He didn't do that. <laughs> what movie is that in? Huh? You got it. What are you doing watching all those movies instead of being into your Bible? But anyway. <laughs> do you realize, now listen to me, because I'm, I'm serious now. Listen to me. Do you realize in 99% of the police shooting cases that they got clobbered for, that there was a crime involved? Now maybe it wasn't a big crime, maybe it was a little crime, but it was a crime. And the police are called. They come to do their job. They say, stop. 
get out of the car. And what's the guy do? He fights them. He resists arrest. I don't care what the crime is. They are the authority. And unfortunately, it's tragic. I get that. You fight the police, they get fired. They don't want to get, they want to go home at night just like you do. You know how many police are called to a traffic stop and they get killed? So they rode into a thing where they don't know what's going on. Somebody called them and said, this guy just stole this or he did this or he did that or he's doing this. They don't know what they're getting into. So what they want is to ask you to come to them and what happens? Everybody wants to fight them. And because there was a crime involved. And so it gets out of control and unfortunately, sometimes somebody gets killed. And all I can tell you is this, hey, Police are the authority in our society, but we live in a society where it has no authority. We have no more respect for the police officers than we do the Word of God sitting in your lap this morning. And look, I'm not a black guy or a white guy. I'm not a, I'm not a blue guy, a yellow guy, a brown guy, or a purple or an orange guy. I mean, to me, race is not the issue. Are you my son? Are you my son? Are you my son? You honky, are you my son? <laughs> Black or yellow, red and white, they're all precious to his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Come on, Alex, sing it with me. Jesus loves the little children. That's enough. Good job. You want to stop police shootings in 99% of the case? Quit doing crime. What a novel idea. Don't fight him. If a police officer comes up and he says, would you get out of the car? Get out of the car. If you didn't do something wrong or you did do something wrong, go down to the police station, cop a plea, get a lawyer, and, and be done with it. Why fight with a guy whose job is to protect us? You know the answer? In 99.9% of it, because a crime was committed. That's all. You know, how to end a war on... No, so now we have a war on crime in America. And it's unwinnable. The police will arrest you at 2 o'clock in the afternoon for murder. You'll go down there and some liberal prosecutor will post your bond and you'll be back on the street by 6 o'clock. There's something wrong with our system. And the system and what's wrong and what's broken is there is no authority. So how do you stop crime? Well, I'll tell you how you don't stop it. You don't stop it by defunding the police, but you, you stop it by obeying the law. You stop crime by, uh, you know, by not committing crime. You get some prosecutors in there that when somebody does break the law, they go to jail. There's prosecutors that are liberal that they boast about how many people they don't put in jail. It used to be that they boasted about and ran on the ticket of how many people they did put in jail. We actually got one city. I think it's out in California. I hate to keep on picking California, but California needs to be picked on. We got a city out there someplace. And several cities that were thinking of this, that the way they're going to stop crime is to pay criminals $1,000 a month not to do crime. Now, what do you say to that, Bob? Where is the application at for that? <laughs> Bubba, you and me are going to sign up for that one, buddy, I'll tell you. 
See, Bubba's got a pee on his hat. That means he's headed to prison. Amen. Now, what kind of reasoning is that? Now, when I was a kid growing up with my kids, I mean, when I was a, had kids growing up, uh, you know, and, uh, and they went to school, and some parents do this, and this is not a criticism, I never gave my kids money for getting good grades. Some parents do. My parents never did. When I was growing up, they just let us eat. <laughs> Things were tough back then. You ain't lived till you had macaroni and tomato juice. Now you go, oh, that was my favorite dish. You don't reward people and give them money so they'll do right. You enforce the laws that you have and you hold people accountable when they don't do what's right. In one city in California, or this may be across the state in California, and this is on video. This isn't some crazy old guy. This is on video. You can walk into a store, Navy, Old Navy, uh, you know, whatever, and take a shopping cart. It's on video. And you can shoplift whatever you want, put it in the cart. It's actually there. And you wheel it out. And if it isn't over $1,000, it's not a crime. Now, if you're going to do that, take a calculator so you don't go over budget. It's crazy. What is wrong with this? I'll tell you, there's no final authority. Now, when the churches broke down, the country broke down, the families broke down, the kids break down. Now, when I see somebody get killed, it's a tragedy. I don't want anybody dead. I, I don't wish ill on anybody. I, 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 I think it's a tragedy. I understand why it happens, and I think that it's a tragedy any way that it happens. But I always, when I hear something like that, no matter where it may be, I basically think two things. And I know this is me. When I hear the story unfold on the news that some guy got shot or somebody was killed in a drive-by shooting or in a police scenario or, or just somebody randomly killed, whatever, I always think of two things. One, if that person would have been in Bible study that night, or on, 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 in discipleship, or a church, they'd still be alive. We had a girl one time here that most of you probably don't remember. It's been several years ago. She was killed in a very tragic car accident. And she came to our church for a number of years. And, uh, you know, and she was really a good girl. But then she got out in the world, and she got out, uh, you know, out, way out, quit coming to church, way out in the world. And I'll never forget it. It was over in Kansas off of, uh, you know, 119th Street someplace out there that on a Thursday night she was speeding with some guy in a car and they got clipped by somebody, went into a pool and the car exploded in flames and she burned to death. Tragic. And I remember somebody calling me and telling me that this girl had died tragically and I felt so bad for it. But at the same time I thought to myself, if she would have been in Bible study on Thursday night, she would still be alive. Folks, there has to be some kind of accountability to authority. There just has to be. 
And the second thing I ask myself in any tragedy, where was mom and dad in this? Where were the parents in this? How does a kid get out into a gang? How does a kid do a drive-by shooting? Was mom driving? Is this your family outing? Where is the responsibility of good parenting to put kids under an authority? Because good, listen, good, solid families are the key to a good, solid Christianity. But it's also imperative for a good, solid nation. And I would say that the statistics would prove this out, that 95 and maybe even more than this percent of the kids that get in trouble in gangs uh, and kill each other have no father in their life. Their moms have had multiple kids by multiple fathers. The fathers don't care about the kid. The mother's then burdened with them that she can't work. She's on welfare because she's got nine kids she's got to take care of. And there's no father figure in their life. There's no good father figure. There's just a lot of no good fathers. And so they drift into the world and there you go. It's a tragedy. You know, and the great Bible verse on this says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart. Now, the counter to that is don't train up a child and away he will go. Now, that's why in the Old Testament, rebellious children, children who were against and rebelled against authority, there was no, there was no quarter given. Because God understood that if you lose the children in a family, you lose the nation. And I know a lot of people have a tough time with this, but you'll read it in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 through 21. It says, if you have a child and the mom and the dad try to talk to that child and he is rebellious, he is stubborn, he won't obey, he rejects chastisement, any of this sounding familiar to anybody today? He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. That you take him to the elders, they try to deal with him, and when that doesn't happen, you take him out and you stone him. You kill him. Now that sounds so absolutely barbaric. But God knew that if you don't keep the kids in tow, you lose your nation. And I've learned in the New Testament under grace that rebellious churches will always be, uh, children, excuse me, will always be produced by rebellious parents. Many of them who go to church have the right Bible, probably saved, and yet you live under that spirit of falsehood and pass that on into your kids. In all my years of ministry, Yes, and this is a once-upon-a-time story. I had a family years ago. I had a mom and a dad, two boys, and one girl. And they have always stayed. You know, it's like everybody knows where you were at on 9-11. You older, well, probably nobody remembers where they were at on Pearl Harbor because you were just, weren't even born yet. But you, some major event. I remember where I was and JFK got killed. I remember where I was on 9-11. 
I, 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 and I, we have things. And in, in ministry for me, there will be certain things that will just stick with me. And I'll, I'll look at everything else I have to deal with. And that'll be a kind of like a litmus test, kind of like a, a measuring rod. And, you know, this one has always stayed in my mind as the poster child of a dysfunctional family. Yet, uh, mom and dad uh, most likely were truly probably saved. But this family was a disaster. This family was not just a train wreck. It was a train wreck on a train wreck. And yet they would argue with you and me and, 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 and they would say, you know, they would, that they love God, they love the Bible, they're in the Bible every day and all that good stuff. Okay, good. Now, you could use this example in ministry and I do in my own when I'm dealing with people like you would in biology class dissect a frog and see what makes it leap. Or what makes it do what it does. First of all, and I, there's a couple of things here that I have never forgotten, and I learned from these. First of all, mom ran the family. Dad was an absolute wuss. And that would be your first warning light. I would talk to him, and I would say, why don't you do this? And he would always take it back. Well, I was going to, and then my wife told me what to do. I'm sure she had a T-shirt that, you know, that said that she wore when she was with him. When I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. He, this was the first problem. And now, boy number one was a total alley cat. Uh, he had the morals of a goat. And uh, he was after every girl he could find. And later he got married, but after he got married, believe it or not, and this was years ago, he would still send girls in his church letters asking to send him naked pictures of themselves. Later, he left his wife and his kids, and he headed back to the alley. That's probably where he's at today. Now, boy number two was even worse, if that could be possible. He was into drugs. Whenever I ever saw him, his eye pupils looked like two pie plates. And, you know, uh, he, he fathered two or three, I can't remember the exact number, illegitimate kids, all by different women. And in time, you know, he left all of them, or they left him. And in a couple of cases, they took the women, were so fed up with him, they took the kids, and he never got to see them again. It was just a disaster. Now, the girl split. That doesn't mean there was two of her. She just left. <laughs> she, if you don't put a little humor in this, you're all going to go out of here crying, so just bear with me today. today. I, mean, I got a dance routine I'm going to do here in a few minutes, so stay with me. Now, the girl split. She wanted nothing to do with this ungodly situation. Last I heard from her, she was married, raising a family, and in a good church, and good for her. But she wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Adams family, from your TV fame. And, you know, the family, to this day, I, I know where they're at. I know whose church they're in. I talk to the pastor, we just, he just tells me, and I just shake my head. You know, uh, and the family to this day blame everybody else for their problems with their kids instead of taking responsibility because they taught their kids no authority. It didn't take a rocket science to see what the real issue was. It was the parents. Dad was not in charge, but the wicked witch of the West was. And, you know, uh, mom states that they're good boys, 
Oh, how many times I've heard that. Well, they're really good boys. And they really don't do anything wrong. It's always everybody else's fault. Hey, boy number two. You ain't going to believe this. Boy number two. I think it was the second girl he got pregnant. There was a group of us that were around, and Mom was going off, you know, about this and that, you know. And and, and some of you may remember this. She blamed the pregnancy on the girls not taking birth control to keep them getting pregnant from her son. Me and my infinite wisdom, I knew what the problem was, and I offered her my number, my vet, to have him neutered. (laughs) Preferably without anesthetic. It only gets better. When baby number two came along, I think that was baby number one. When baby number two came along, mom is posting. Now, keep in mind, this kid is totally illegitimate, conceived in sin. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that it's a bastard child, if you want to use that term and and take it back to Hebrews, uh, where it it lays that out in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. Illegitimacy. That's where the word originally nature comes from. And now she's posting and telling everybody, oh, I'm going to have a grandbaby. Oh, it's just wonderful. I'm so excited. I'm going to have a grandbaby. You mean the one that was, the one that was conceived in sin? Now, I realize it's not the kid's problem. It's not the kid's fault. But I want to tell you right now, in all these situations, it's the kids who pay the price. And if you don't know that, well, I'll help you here in just a little bit. <clears throat> And it's a thing when you mean the, the baby, the illegitimate child conceived in sin out of wedlock, and you actually think, you really do, you actually think that that is the same that what God intended through marriage of producing children. I mean, boy number two knew nothing about the Bible. His favorite verse was Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. You actually think that that's the same of what God did. And I told her one time, I said, you know what? I think you've been getting into your boy's stash of whatever drugs he's selling. Listen, having a baby out of wedlock happens. Absolutely. It does. I've dealt with it many, 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 many times in my years, more times than I'd probably like, but I have dealt with it because it's an, it happens. It happens. But you need to understand, that's not a time when you start to get the nursery ready just yet. From the Bible standpoint, Bible principles, there's three things that need to be done. Three things that need to be addressed. And not doing them will spell disaster. And hey, I've seen it. I've seen it. I know how it works. Here's how it works, and I've seen this almost, unless they follow the biblical protocol, I've seen this in almost every case. They do their own thing. They have no responsibility to authority. That's why they got in the situation they're in. So now suddenly they're going to have the right authority after the baby's born, right? Wrong. So what happens, it gets worse and worse and worse, and either one or the other leaves. Usually the woman leaves and takes the baby. The guy never sees the baby again. 
or there's some circumstance there that he don't care, he goes on to his next conquest. And the real tragedy is the woman probably raises those kids who are going to grow up to be lost and are going to wind up in a lake of fire. All because of some sexual pervert who just wanted to indulge his flesh and never was under any authority or accountability. And he's a rebellious kid because he has rebellious parents. Now, I use that as an example uh, because the real issue in this family that we're talking about here will be the issue in every family when kids fall into the world. And I always ask I always ask people a simple question. It's not complicated. What's the difference? I mean, you're going to have some guy out there or some gal who you claim that you're in your Bible. You claim you love God. You claim that you're right and everybody else is wrong. You claim that, you know, don't, don't tell me about, I love God. I'm in my Bible and all this stuff and that. What is the difference if what you produce out of your family is the same as the unsaved world does. Where is the disconnect? You love God, you love the Bible, you're in the Bible, but what you produce in your family is the same thing that an unsaved family produces. There's a disconnect here someplace along the line. A complete breakdown in parenting skills to instill a moral value system into your kid and a respect for authority, starting with the Word of God, starting then with the family's authority under the Word of God, and then moving on out into the world from there. But there's no biblical working authority in the family that I was talking about, yet they were in church every Sunday, every Bible study, had the right Bible. And if you talk to them, they would tell you how much they love God and this and that. But see, the bottom line is, what do you produce? Don't tell me what you believe. Don't tell me this gas about, you know, who you are and how much you love God. What are you producing? No different than the world. But Gary Potter's sign back there, you can't fix stupid. And so you'll go on blaming everybody else to shift the blame off yourself. You have enough gas to float the Goodyear blimp. Yet the real proof, and I know this is not popular. This is why I'm not popular. Never, never follow the smoke screen. Always look behind the smoke. Because the real proof will be found in one little verse that will absolutely destroy you. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. By their fruits you shall know them. End of story. Nothing more to say. You want to see the real deal? Check the fruit box. See what this family who claims to love God, be this, be that. Look and see the fruit that we're producing. Now, I get it. Every family has problems with their kids. I'm not talking about that. And some of you have issues with your... I get that. I'm talking about the family that I'm talking about here, where it gets so chaotic that they're producing now illegitimate kids and mom and dad are pasting it all over the place. Oh, boy, we're so excited. Is it going to be a boy? Is it going to be a girl? And I'll tell you something else. The real funny thing back then was some of God's people. 
who thought, I, I thought they would know better. They're getting on there and saying, praise the Lord, all that's praise the Lord. But if somebody said, oh, I'm a homosexual and I got AIDS, you wouldn't say praise the Lord. Oh, maybe you would. But you see, God's people are so, and, and I'll tell you, Back then, every family that did that, their kids were in the same mess. Birds of a feather flocked together. And it was a thing where it was so, it was so clear. And this is a textbook example that unfortunately will plays itself over and over again in, in God's people's lives. And of course, you want to see the real deal? Don't listen to what somebody says. I get to these guys all the time, you know, I'm with my this and that family and I'm in the Bible every day. What are you producing? You're producing the same thing as the world did. And that's what you're saying supposed to mean something? By their fruits ye shall know them. End of story. You know where to go with that. The importance of keeping your family together. So there's a great lesson in John chapter 7 as we come through this thing. It's a lesson that truth, God's truth, will either hold your family together like he is with yours or it will divide it. And dad, you, sir, are the architect of your kid's future. You and you alone. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. You will launch them, Proverbs 127, verse 4, in a direction in life. You and only you. And many times when they fall into all of the things that like this family did in my poster child family and all worse sometimes, pedophiles, I mean just child molesters, I mean it's unbelievable. The family always blaming somebody else. Now, having said that today, I want to continue on in chapter 7 and I want to show you that with all this rejection, what the real issue was, and I want to tie this all into where we have been in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, and I want to give you today the bottom line. Now, this will be the key to all, your, all you singles who someday you will be married, all you young couples that are already married who are having children in wedlock, not out of wedlock. Moms and dads with kids. The key to having any real authority in your life and the lives of your children. So I want to read today chapter 7, verses 6 through 17. I'm sorry, Scott, I didn't give you that today, this morning to put on there. But here's what it says. Jesus saith unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is already always, always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up into the feast. Uh, I go not up unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. And when he said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man, others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. 
Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus came up unto the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, never having learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he, will, he, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it will be of God or whether I speak of myself. Father, help us today. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us and you've given us. We thank you for the people in this church and the moms and the dads and, the, and, the, and the, Lord, all the people who are following the Bible and doing what's right. And, Lord, the, the fruit is in their life. They are not somebody that has to sit back and, 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 and chastise somebody else while their own life is falling apart around their ears uh, with God doing nothing with them. They're active. You're using them. You're using their families. And their kids are a testimony in this church. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a couple of things here. First, just so you know, in verse 6, he says, my time has not come. That's a crucifixion. We're up against that time. We know that this is crucifixion. And uh, now, all this is dealing around the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the other thing you need to know, verse 2. And that takes place around September uh, 22nd, 23rd, whatever, however it plays out that year. And then we saw in verse 7 that he tells them that the world hates, uh, the world's going to hate him because he tells the truth about the world. Now, I want to tell you something, and you might as well mark this down. You're going to start to see some parallels here. Anytime you start telling the truth about anything, there's going to be people who don't like you. It's just that simple. Anytime you shake the tree and the fruit starts falling out and the fruit is rotten in that tree, i.e. the family, they aren't going to be happy about it. They want you to think that they produce the most perfect pears, apples, cherries, bananas that you could ever want in your life. And when you start shaking a tree with truth, the illegitimacy of the fruit falls down. And they ain't going to like that. So that's just the way it goes. And uh, he testified that the world was wicked. And in verse 12, you can see the division that, that the Word of God has caused. Some say that he was a good guy, see? Some say that he was a devil, see? And, and interesting, when I, I like that, the fact that it's somebody says that he's of the devil, because that's interesting when John chapter 6, uh, verses uh, uh, up to verse 70, we actually saw somebody who was of the devil, and now somebody's trying to pass that buck off to Christ. Interesting. But that also would be true of you and me. There'll be some people, when you preach the truth, that will love you. There'll be some people that, when you preach the truth, they will hate you. And there'll be some people, when you preach the truth, that just love to hate you. I mean, it's just the way it goes. So you want to know this. When you stand for truth, you too, like Christ, will divide people. Some will love you, some will hate you, and some will want nothing to do with you and criticize you and blast you every chance that they get. It just comes with the territory. You'll always go back and you say, okay, I heard what this guy said. I heard what this gal said. Let me just look beyond that. What's the fruit? Um, be a fruit inspector. But when you get to verse 14 through 17, we now see the real issue. And this will be a good lesson for all of us of what really divides people today. Note verse 15, he, Christ had no formal education. He hadn't been to the established universities of his day that he would be accepted by the spiritual leaders. And yet in verse 16, we see that the real issue was the doctrine that he had. Now doctrine, Bible doctrine, that will be the fundamental baseline or bedrock of 
the Bible. The major doctrine of the Word of God that will never change and the Bible itself is built on. Now, if you want to investigate this farther, you want a place to start, I'd go back to Proverbs chapter 9. We covered it in Proverbs, but that was 40 years ago. In Proverbs 9, 1, it says, Wisdom hath built her house, she hath hewned out her seven pillars. And I told you back then that those seven pillars will be the seven main doctrines of the Bible that will never change in all of the world and the Bible and the universe and Christianity will be built on. And I actually gave them to you back then. And New Testament Bible Christianity will be established on a Bible absolute truth called doctrine. Teaching that will never change in a world that is in constant change. Now, from what we have seen here in our verse that we just read in our preceding last couple of Sundays, we now know doctrine will divide. First of all, it will divide truth from error. Second of all, it will try truth from heresy. Doctrine is what keeps Christianity pure. And doctrine, listen to me, is what keeps God's people honest. You can blow smoke all you want, how much you love God. If you're not following the biblical protocols and the doctrines in what you're dealing with, whatever that may be, you're, you're under a spirit of falsehood. Now, today we have completely done away with doctrine. And this is the problem. <clears throat> the three great satanic tools today were the charismatic movement, all in the 19th century, the charismatic movement, neo-evangelicalism, and neo-orthodoxy. All, ex- all three of those exist for one reason, and that is to get the differences and the doctrine out of Christianity. And they've done it. And that has filtered down into churches and, unfortunately, down into families. And now there is no absolute truth to hold us accountable in anything. We are like the book of Judges today. There is no king in Israel and every man is doing what's right in his own eyes. And we see in Christianity, because of that, women, pastors, and deacons. We see homosexuality now live accepted. I got a church up by the corner by Carnegie Park where I go to walk up there sometimes in the morning and there's a church out there and it's got a woman pastor who's a lesbian <coughs> and out in front there, big sign, we accept everybody with two rainbow flags. See, I thought rainbow flags was, a, was an ice cream. Then I found out I meant something else. Never ate rainbow ice cream since that time. You know, I, last thing I want to do is to be at a place out there in front eating a big rainbow ice cream and somebody come up. <laughs> no, no, thanks. <laughs> Woohoo! But anyway. <laughs> we see social drinking. There are churches in Kansas City that are just waiting for marijuana to be legalized. And then it's going to be okay. We see sin in every category, like the illegitimate babies being born. Nobody cares about the sanctity of marriage anymore. And if you think of a kid, where did a kid learn the, value, the no value system that marriage wasn't important to have a child? Or maybe in your mind it isn't important anymore. You see, we see the world becoming one with Christianity by losing doctrine. Now, our definitive verse, and I don't know if I ever gave you this, on doctrine will be Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. This is your definitive verse. This tells you what doctrine bottom line is. And this is where the problem lies. 
It says in verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now watch verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. You see, doctrine is your authority. Bible doctrine forms for you an authority. So you can put out gas all you want about how much you love God in the Bible. If you're not operating on doctrinal basis, you have no authority. And this is why Christianity and families are in such a mess today. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, you'll know that the reason the scribes and the Pharisees hated him is because they had no authority, and he did. Now let that sink in a minute. He was not of their school. We aren't of their school either. He was not part of their movement, nor are we. But he knew more Bible than they did, all because he had a word of authority based on doctrine. And they hated him for it. And you know what? They're going to hate you for it. (coughs) (coughs) The farther you go up the ladder to serve the Lord, the more visible you become, the more you become a target. Now here's, and I'll tell you right now, there'll be plenty of people out there that will try to mask their failures by attacking you. And when they do that, don't get upset about it. Just ask one question. I remember back, remember the Burger King lady? She's actually dead now. Remember the Burger King thing back there where they went up there and uh, they were going, uh, she was, I think she was Burger King going to McDonald's or something like that. But I, I don't remember the thing, but she's a nice, and she, she had a crusty little voice, you know. And, uh, and she walked in there and she'd go up there and the guy says, where, she, she said, where's the, where's the beef? You know, remember that? She's dead now. She made a million dollars doing that. One little line with that little voice. Where's the beef? Because she was saying that those hamburgers don't really have any beef in them. But they don't. It's more like a cereal. You know, you just put milk on them and eat them. But anyway, that's the question you ask. Not where's the beef? But with that same crusty little voice, just look them in their beady little fat eyes and say, where's the fruit? Don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. Don't tell me what the church is doing wrong when if we took fruit, your basket is empty That's Spanish for empty. And yes, I am bisexual when I speak two languages. So, I mean, bilingual, I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, let this sink in for a minute. He wasn't of their school. He was not part of their movement. But he knew more Bible than they ever did on a day in their life and because he had the authority. And they hated him for it, and they're going to hate you for it. (coughs) Now, How do you get to that point in your life? I am so glad you asked that question. When I talk about building people, this is what I'm I'm talking about. This is what I follow. This is a New Testament biblical pattern for me to teach you good doctrine. And you want to come to the place where, with your kids, it isn't just doing what's right when you're home. What happens if you go off to school someplace? What happens when you get a real job and you go to work? I, I was talking to Joe Christensen this morning, and you know, I wish he'd, he'd have told me this earlier, but I was so busy running around. And you took Riley down, was it Riley down to school this week, right? And he's playing ball down there, and the coach, it's a Christian school, and the coach, the first thing he, he did when he got everybody together, he says, okay, he said, I want you to know, and he says, he asked somebody to lead in prayer. And everybody just had their head down. Riley raised his hand and says, I'll lead in prayer. 
Now, where did he learn that? That's what you're supposed to do, see? That's what we're all supposed to do. You, you look for the opportunity. Hey, the opportunities are, there'll be people that will say, who wants to do this? Joe Sylvester will tell you the story years ago. I took, when they were young Christians, and he told somebody their story. And, I, and, and I, they were just saved, and I had several of them, and I took them down to a Pentecostal tent meeting down the road here where they had some guy preaching because I wanted them to see what Pentecostals operated. And Joe laughs. He still tells the story. <coughs> he says, yeah, I couldn't believe it. We're sitting there, and the guy gets up there, and before he even preaches, he says, I'm looking for the happiest guy here to come up and testify. I raised my hand so fast. I said, I'm right here. Here I am. He says, come on up here. I did. And for the next 45 minutes, I preached on the blood of Jesus Christ. God's son cleanses us from all sin. You've got to look for the opportunities. They're right there. One little thing like that. And God will use that more than we could ever know. Your kids in sports, your kids at what they do, who are great testimonies, and all of them are. It's an Im- it doesn't seem like much, but you know what? I found out that real impacting Christian life is usually built on little things that most people miss. Now, this is what I follow. First, the obvious. You've got to have the right church. You've got to have the right pastor. And you've got to have the right Bible. Having, having the wrong Bible is as bad as having the wrong pastor. You've got some ding-dong pastor who has no clue how to build people. You know, and I've been in churches all my life where asked by guys who are looking for a pastor. And they'll bring a pastor in and they'll, the, the, the committee will ask him questions. Every one of them asked the wrong question. I could tell what a guy is going to make it or not by just asking one question. I don't have to ask where he went to school. or that. I just ask him one thing. If you become pastor of this church, tell me your plan to build the people in this church and to build this church by building the people one at a time. How are you going to do that? If he says, well, I'm going to get him to read their Bible, drop kick him through the goalpost of life. That's not how. You have to have a plan. You have to know what you're doing. So here's what I do. And I'm no, I'm no, I'm as dumb as a stump. Are you kidding me? But here's the six things you build into people. And I'm telling you, we're going to have our leadership training come up here in October. And this is what I'm going to do. I may not do this directly, but this is my goal of, of what I'm, well, I'm going to do. Now, what is the first thing? It starts with sound doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, and he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. Oh, there it is. Why don't we put that out there? For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for man-stealers, for liars, for any other that is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. Having the great doctrines that have been handed down to us from generation to generation that are solid Bible doctrine. Doctrine of salvation. Doctrine of eternal security. Doctrine of the church. Doctrine of the end times. 
doctrine of grace, the doctrine of nation of Israel. When we come through Bible Institute, I walked you through the seven series, seven baptisms, seven resurrections, seven mysteries, seven judgments, the seven seven. You'll find seven laws in the Bible, seven trees in the garden, seven marriages in the Bible, seven barren women in the Bible, seven stages appear to grow. They're all doctrine. And when you learn them and you put them in your life, they form solid patterns of doctrine for your Christian life. And they become the bedrock. And all these will establish doctrine in your life, which in turn will establish you in your church. The second one, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Sound mind. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stirred up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on my hands, ordaining him. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, Philippians 2.5 says that we're to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. That would be a solid mind, a sound mind, will always uh, be built on solid, sound Bible doctrine. A sound mind only comes from a foundation of the baseline of the truth of the Word of God. <coughs> Your mind becoming one with God's mind <coughs> through the principles of the Word of God. <coughs> so I pour into you Bible doctrine. I develop you in Bible doctrine. And, and, and sound doctrine will lead to a sound mind, and that will lead you to the next one. Titus chapter 1, verse 13. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. A sound faith. You see, it's not knowing what you believe, but why you believe it. It's not going back, you know, going back to your kids for a moment. A sure faith will produce sound children. A stable rock solid faith in the Word of God and its principles that forms for them an authority factor because a doctrine is authority. So they don't get into the godless things the world does because the family is standing on doctrine and doctrine is authority. So they get a value system. Hey, the world, the flesh, and the devil will attack you and shake your faith, destroy your family. We've seen it in the pandemic. We've seen it with the world falling apart around us. We've seen it in the downfall of everything we know in life in America, the complete disruption of our normal way of life. But you know what? Talk is cheap. All of my life, even in our own church, before all this stuff hit the fan, oh, I saw it over the years. People saying, well, I'm with you, Bob, no matter what happens. You're the smartest man in the world. You're, you know what? Yeah, I'll stick with you no matter what you say. Yeah, right up to the time that your faith tree got shook. Talk's cheap, pal. We all saw it. We talked big right up to when your faith is on the line. And then it's, see you later, alligator. After a while, crocodile. I, I, I get it. You know what it comes down to? Simply what you trust in. Your bedrock faith. Sound faith based on what you know to be true and the experience of what God is doing. You know, we all go through tough times. I know I do. There'll never be a time 
when something doesn't come down the road for you personally or our church. And the only thing that gets you through that <coughs> is a sound faith. Now, a sound faith isn't just, you know, the fact that... This, a sound faith incorporates the fact that you've had a relationship with God and you've been in a, a bunch of situations just like this one and you've always seen Him come through for you. You see, to me, my sound faith isn't based on stepping out by faith without knowing what's out there. To me, my sound faith is looking back and seeing everything that he's been there for me in the last 50 years, some years of my life, and I know that he's been there for me for 50 years. What's the chances he's going to be there for me tomorrow? See, that's sound faith. Now, the next one, number four, 2 Timothy chapter uh, uh, 1, verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And that'll be sound words. Now, I want you to see this. Hold fast the form of sound words. You see? You have to form sound words. You do that through your spiritual growth. That means you simply know what you're talking about. Jeffrey's going to preach here at the thing this afternoon. A guy's preached last week. Every week somebody goes there. Everybody's on Lifeline. You're discipling. You're working. You're preaching other places. The guys were out on the street last night and, uh, you know, down at the mission and all that stuff. And you know what? When those guys get up there, they know what they're talking about. But they had to learn to form those sound words. And you know how you form sound words? You form them out of sound doctrine. It's just a natural process. I, I watched that take place with so many of you. God, through the doctrine here, forms your words, and like Jesus, having never learned letters, you learn to speak with authority because of your doctrine, not because of your education. God forming sound words in our lives, words that carry weight, words that are important, words that people want to listen to what you're saying because there's great power in words. And again, hey, I'm just telling you, sound words. Job chapter 26, verse 4, my friend, at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to ask the question, to whom hast thou uttered words? Were they sound or were they unsound? Were they based on the fruit in your life, in your own family, in your sound walk with God, in your sound doctrine? Or were you just somebody that was passing over the blimp of the football game full of gas? Then the fifth one will be sound speech. And it says, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that it is of the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. And uh, <clears throat> now that's, <clears throat> that's based on the sound words. And simply being able to articulate sound words into sound speech. You see, the doctrine will teach you the sound words and then you take those sound words and through the doctrine you articulate those words into sentences, paragraphs, and, and messages. It, it's in teaching the Bible and preaching the Bible. Giving you the opportunity to preach and teach the Word of God and by that you develop your sound words into sound speech. And again, I watch God doing this. From my position, it's one of the greatest blessings is watching God do what He does with all of you. I watch you come in and you're dumber than a stump, which is a good thing. 
But then you begin to grow. You begin to get disciples. You begin to get this. You begin to buy into what we're doing. You begin to invest your life in this place. And then God began to take that. And he, we, what we do here is what families many times fail to do. We build a value system. Not just a morality one, but a value system of what's really important. I don't want you getting like this family that I talked about earlier years ago that, that you just get out there and lose all reality because of the fact that you, you're just, you, you have no accountability. You know, and it says here, sound speech cannot be condemned. You may not like it, and you may speak against it, but at the end of the day, it's still standing while your family is falling apart. And that's what people don't see. People listen to some gas bag and shoot his mouth off or her mouth off, and you know what? They think that they're actually saying something, but the truth of the matter is when somebody has really sound speech that's based on biblical principles and their family and their life have the fruit behind it, there's nothing you can say about that. You may not like it. You may not care for it. You may not like the person. But at the end of the day, that, that, that truth will still be standing and you'll be falling. And you can't, and you got to remember this, folks. You can't, you can't really condemn sound speech, but there will be a condemnation of you with the judgment seat of Christ that will condemn your unsound speech. And you can't condemn it because it's building based on sound doctrine. And you know what? Somebody, all you got to do is just look at, again, the fruit in your life. And, you know, and that's what we try to do here. Wanting God to develop sound words into your life and to sound speech. Using every opportunity to get you to teach and preach, starting with you being discipled and then discipling somebody else. You know, the nursery, the lifeline groups, the mission, everything we do, the Timothy uh, I'm going to open up here in just a little bit that we're going to, now that we've got it established, the Bible Explorers, I'm going to put some teams in there to help Jim and Kathy to give them a break so they can get to church every once in a while. And it's all about one thing, and that is to get you up to that level. You know, we're having our leadership training coming up. And, and you know, uh, it's, a, it's, it's for me, it's for one thing, taking the best that God has given me and make you better. I'm going to take you on the inside of some things. That's why it's not going to be on YouTube. That's why I'm not going to let everybody out there who, who doesn't make an investment in this church by being here. Uh, to, and that's why, you know, it's not going to be on a website where somebody can, some pastor can get it because he'll never understand what to do with it. No, no. This is personally from me to you. This is me taking the best of the best that God has given me at your own discretion if that's what you want to do. And then I'm going to walk you onto the inside on what the ministry really is and what it's going to take for you to get to that point, to be a leader. And uh, many of you are already there. Many of you are on your way there. And some of you have just come in the door and, uh, you know, we'll see what you can do with it. But that's the job of this church. My job is to turn as many young men and young ladies out in the time that God has given me here to carry this thing on no matter where God sends you. And to do that, you're going to have to have sound doctrine. You're going to have to have a sound family, and you're going to have to have sound children. And it's just that simple. And then the last thing, Proverbs 3, verse 21. He says, My son, let, them, let, them, uh, let, uh, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And the last thing that you will build into your life, all based on Bible 
sound doctrine is sound wisdom and discretion. Now here's where it all ends up as far as I'm concerned. This is the end result. Having the wisdom of God's word, but also knowing how to use it. Discernment is discretion. Uh, and that is to be able to discern uh, and understand what you're really dealing with. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, the, it's the trait of judging wisely and objectively. And we're going to talk about that next week as we continue on with this. Seeing as it really is, not as it appears. And a lot of things appear one way, and people will try to get you to buy into it by the words that they use. But the trained ear and the trained eye knows it's not sound words because there's no sound doctrine because look at the unsound family or the unsound person. You know, from time to time, there will people come into this church that have loose of doctrine. Uh, they, have, they have heresies. And, uh, you know, they will try to sneak in here and, uh, and try to impregnate this church, and it'll never happen. Because sound words will always keep out unsound words, and the follow the policy that we follow, the pattern that we follow, is the best defense against something like that, and never gets the first base. But every church has it. Every church has it. Now, when I build you into these six areas, you will have a solid foundation in the Bible. Truth, not just the biblical niceties. You're going to know your Bible, like so many of you already do. These form or will form the core value system. The core value system based on authority that is based on doctrine. In your life first, and then as you get married and grow, you young couples and that, then into your family. You're now going to be, understand this, you're now going to be a threat to the world. <clears throat> yes, you're going to be a threat to Christianity, and you're going to be a threat to pastors, teachers, Bible colleges, friends, and many times your own family, as we have seen so clearly. For you're now established in doctrine and the truth of the Word of God, and that will divide you. You make your life's decisions and choices based on the unchanging truth, not the changing situations. And that itself is going to divide you from many things in life. I am not interested in you all being perfect, because I know that's never going to happen. I'm certainly not perfect. You're not going to be perfect. Imperfection is just part of our life as human beings. And now, obviously, the Bible can keep that to a low minimum, and that's good, and that's what I'm interested in. But I'm not interested in making you perfect. What I'm interested in is watching the progression in your life. Growth. None of us are perfect, but I want to see you progress. A year from now, I don't want you where you're at. I, I, I want you to grow. I want you to continue. But it's not going to grow by you passing off your gas about how you love God, but there's no real fruit in your life. It has to be based on something solid, and that has to be in authority. Yesterday in the Bible Institute, we were in Acts chapter 4, and we were telling the story there in 13, 14, and 15 about this lame man who was at the gate. And how that, uh, I walked you through 10 things that shows you how that's a picture of an unsaved man and all the different aspects. And, you know, uh, he, uh, he was laying there at the entry of the gate, lame on his feet, and uh, he was, uh, you know, completely dependent on everybody else. And when, when, when the scribes and the Pharisees are seeing the apostles that healed him, 
and all the great power that they had to give him the ability that now this guy who was lame, he's leaping and he's walking and he's running around and he's telling everybody what happened. They didn't like it. And they get amongst themselves and they said, now look at these guys. They are, they are ignorant and unlearned men. They're not like us. They, didn't, they don't have the great wisdom that we have. And the Bible says, and they beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, it says that they could say nothing about it. They got together and they said, we don't like this. We don't care for this, but we can't deny what happened. You know why? Because you never can deny real fruit. You may not like it. You may use your own spiritual falsehood to, to cover your own lack of fruit up. You may blame everybody else out there except yourself, just like the scribes and the Pharisees did, but here they are between a rock and a hard place. You have the apostles who just healed this guy, they could not heal him. His healing was the fruit of Christ's ministry through them. And now they don't like that. They're organized over here saying, what are we going to do? We don't like it, but there is the guy standing amidst us that two hours ago was lame on his feet. We can't deny what God is doing in that guy's life. And they may not like it, but at the end of the day, you compare what God's fruit is in your life to what their fruit is. It's a joke. You know why? Because you're built on solid doctrine, sound doctrine. Sound doctrine that produces a sound mind, that produces sound words, that produces right down the line, and at the end gives you wisdom and discretion. And the Bible says, by their fruit you shall know them. Well, we'll hold up there 